I find the moment that a woman makes friends with me, she becomes jealous, exacting, suspicious, and a damn nuisance. And I find the moment that I make friends with a woman, I become selfish and tyrannical. So here I am, a confirmed old bachelor, and likely to remain so. Well, after all, Pickering. From Chicago, this is The Unenthusiastic Critic, a podcast about destroying your marriage one movie at a time. I have told you repeatedly I do not have an open mind about musicals, particularly three-hour-long musicals. Already, I know that there are too many songs. The last song literally just ended. Seriously? Intermission coming up? Right, but I mean, the whole thing has been about this fucking ball, so this should be the end. Oh, we still have over an hour left? Thank you, Jesus. I feel as though all the life has been sucked out of my body. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Unenthusiastic Critic. I'm Michael McDonough, and I write about film and television at unaffiliatedcritic.com. With me today, though she'd rather be pretty much anywhere else, is my lovely wife, Nakia, otherwise known as The Unenthusiastic Critic. Hi. How are you today, dear? I'm very unenthusiastic about today's project. Perfect. <laughs> On this week's episode, Nikki is going to watch eight-time Oscar winner My Fair Lady, the 1965 film version of Lerner and Lowe's beloved Broadway musical starring Audrey Hepburn and Rex Harrison. But first, though this is only our second episode, Nikki, you'll be pleased to hear we already have some listener mail. Yay! As a test balloon, we sent out our pilot episode on Back to the Future to a few podcast aficionados we know. And this email comes from Kim in Seattle, an old friend of mine and a new friend of the show. Kim writes, To blatantly curry favor with Nakia right off the top, she's totally right about Blade Runner and The Sound of Music. Thank you. And Harrison Ford's face. Thank you. And Crispin Glover. Thank you. (laughs) Also, Family Guy and or The Simpsons parodies are totally a reason not to see Star Wars. (laughs) Okay, so at this point I'm regretting sending anything to Kim in Seattle. Vindication. So then she has a couple of questions. She says, thanks for running down all the different things each of you bring to these films. Age, race, mother's film appreciation level. (laughs) Those are definitely what make the conversation interesting. But what about gender? Do either of you think that makes a difference in how you approach or enjoy movies? The other question your conversation made me consider was rewatchability. Who decides that a movie is canon and must be watched by generations to come? This has been a fun question for me to ponder when sharing, i.e. forcing them to watch, movies with my teenage boys. Nakia, is Back to the Future a movie that you think everyone needs to see? Where does it rank on your watchability or rewatchability index? So, a couple of questions there. Let's take the second one first. Rewatchability. I think Kim is probably right. I think probably we need to discuss that at the end of each one of these conversations Mm -hmm. and maybe even come up with some kind of ranking system of where these things fit in the canon. But let's take that question. Would you want, encourage, force someone else to watch Back to the Future? No. Um, No. I did not enjoy it enough that I would advocate on its behalf to anyone who hadn't seen it. Um, I don't necessarily think they are missing out on some great conversation about film if they haven't seen it. Um, 
and again, you know, the xenophobia, the racism, and the sexual harassment is not enjoyable, not fun. Uh, so <laughs> I don't think that that's something that I would definitely force anyone or encourage anyone to watch. So I'm not likely to rewatch it myself. So no, yeah, no, no on that one. So for you, it sort of falls in the category of this kind of like cultural curiosity. I don't even know that I would call it a cultural curiosity. I mean, I think it's one of those things that if you saw it in the time that it was a thing, then fine. I don't know that there's a reason to seek it out now, necessarily. I don't know that it there's, there's anything particularly interesting about the film itself that would make me say, oh, you should really watch Back to the Future because it informs all these other conversations about film or because it does something really interesting within the sort of medium of film. So, no, I don't, I don't think so. Okay, well, we're obviously going to need to come up with some kind of ranking right. system, you know, yeah. that ranges from, you know, essentials of the canon sure. through perfectly harmless, and then at the other end of the spectrum, something, you know, crimes against humanity. I mean, it's burn like... Burn it with fire. Right. And I don't know that, I mean, I would say Gone with Wind probably falls in that latter category. And Back to the Future is kind of, if you're home and you have mono and there's nothing else on, <laughs> you know, sit down and watch Back to the Future. That's totally fine. And they probably a lot of the films that we've watched kind of fall into that <laughs> space. But I, I think when they reissue the Blu-ray, <laughs> I think that quote would look good on the cover. <laughs> if you're home, if you got mono... There's nothing else on. You don't. Feel it should come with like a slanket like with the DVD attached. attached. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Okay, so let's go back. So let's talk about Kim's other question. Okay. You know, and she's right. Last week we talked about the fact that you're black and I'm white, and we talked about our age difference mm -hmm. and the little generation gap, and we talked about our various upbringings. We didn't talk about gender no. as it influences this conversation. And I think it's a fair question because when I when I look at this list of movies that I've composed that I'm planning to force you to watch, <laughs> there are a lot of boy movies on it. It's a lot of sort of science fiction action films that you haven't seen, war movies you have avoided almost completely. Um, but on the other hand, with us, it's kind of a tricky situation. Right. You tend to be much more in the uh, rom-com category than I am. You like what would quote-unquote be considered girlier films. Chick flicks. Chick flicks. Right. If there's a chick in our relationship, it's, it's me. Him. And right, so, and let's also admit that that's just kind of a problematic binary to set up. Like, there are lots of women who enjoy sci-fi films, and there are lots of men who enjoy romantic comedies. Okay, you've covered your bases. I, well, I don't want it to seem like because I'm a woman, I did not see Star Wars. No, I just didn't see Star Wars because... It was never really brought to my attention until I started dating you. So I don't know how much gender plays into it, at least with us, other than it's the reverse of it. I am probably much more apprehensive about romantic comedies and musicals because I just tend to not enjoy those worlds as much. And I'm probably much more open to the sort of sci-fi, thrillery, and comedy films I mean, I, I do think it's an interesting conversation to have in the week that I'm making you watch My Fair Lady. Right. I think it's an interesting conversation we can continue to explore because I think your resistance to, for example, musicals and romantic comedies comes from this place of not buying them. Right. 
like this sort of Hollywood version of what love is, what romance is, this kind of earnestness, mm. all of this. And I, I don't know, is it a gender thing? I, don't, I mean, again, yeah, I don't know if it's a gender thing. I don't know if it's, a, you know, I was raised by a single mother who just didn't, that was not the world that I was getting, <laughs> you know, the world ain't no crystal stare kind of thing. Um... So I guess I just wasn't ever fed that sort of fairy tale of, you know, oh, you're going to find your Prince Charming and it's going to be a beautiful love story and they will be meet cutes and things of that nature and you will burst into song because you're so in love. It's just like, well, no, that's actually not how that works. And so, I mean, maybe that's part of it is that I was, you know, a 40-year-old divorcee when I was 12. So <laughs> that's just... And so I just never... It's hard for me to suspend belief with like musicals and romantic comedies anything that's too earnest anything where a part of the story is sort of ineffectual communication in order to sort of set up this really ridiculous situation and, and resolution i'm just not i i can't i don't have the patience for it so yeah <laughs> so your soul is dead my, my soul is dead there is no santa claus you know that sort of thing whereas i grew up singing show tunes right. and... <laughs> yeah we're a strange couple <laughs> Okay, well, I think I think this conversation will carry over into our next conversation about musicals. But first, let me finish Kim's email. She also had a couple of movie suggestions for us. Okay. She said, if Nakia hasn't seen Heathers, that should definitely be on the list. I have absolutely seen Heathers. Winona Ryder was my, you know, awkward white girl crush for a long time. So I absolutely saw Heathers. Or nuts. <laughs> <laughs> And then Kim also says, for maximum Crispin Gloverness mm. and 80s vests, she suggests The River's Edge. I have not Which seen. is a movie I don't remember very well. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch that. It does feature one of the first starring roles for an actor you and I disagree violently about, Keanu Reeves. The greatest actor of a generation. Okay. I can't even <laughs> have this conversation right now. We have other things to talk about. We will definitely consider putting The River's Edge on the list. <laughs> Thanks for the email, Kim. <laughs> Poor Professor Higgins. Poor Professor Higgins. On he plots against all odds. Oh, So, as I mentioned during our pilot episode, The Unenthusiastic Critic began as a blog, and the third movie we ever watched together was The Sound of Music, which you took against in violent and <laughs> profane fashion. Would we call it profane? I think if our listeners will go back and read that article, yes, we would call it that. So I think before we actually get to the movie this week, we should talk a little bit about your feelings about musicals. I hate them, typically. So I think, and we mentioned this a little bit earlier, I think the problem is, and I admit that this is absolutely all on my end, is that I cannot, as a viewer, sort of allow myself to be taken into the world. I just don't buy into it. And I think musicals, possibly more than any other film, if you don't allow yourself to just be kind of swept into it. I don't know that there's any way that you could enjoy it. This is something I wrote a little bit about in that article, that there's, you know, movies in general require this suspension of disbelief, mm -hmm. that you have to go into it believing all of these things. You have to go into it believing, 
you know, there's fantasy elements, there's aliens and time travel and vampires and implausible love stories and all of these things that you have to suspend disbelief for. And then musicals may have all of that and you have to believe that you're in a world where people spontaneously burst into song and dance around to invisible orchestras. Right. And that is a leap that you have trouble making. <laughs> I just, I think it is, it's, I think it's just kind of one bridge too far. The genre just kind of naturally calls for a level of earnestness that puts me a little bit on edge. It, again, requires an inefficient communication methods because it's like, now I have to talk to you in rhyme. And I just, okay. And then because of that, it's three hours long. And so... <laughs> <laughs> we've only watched Sound of Music. That's the only musical that we've watched. But in my mind, I feel that we've watched at least 10 musicals. And it's because Sound of Music was just so long. I felt like I watched 10 musicals. Julie Andrews is a goddamn treasure. Her voice is amazing. I understand why people enjoy it. I just could not do it. I just couldn't kind of give myself over to it. There's a little bit of a level of like secondhand embarrassment when people burst out into song for me. Uh, it's like finding the like journal of some high school teenager who's <laughs> writing about crushes and the poetry is just really, really bad. Kind of like things that rhyme with Corey, story, allegory, kind of. And so I just, I, I can't, <laughs> I can't do it. I can't get there. So again, it. it's kind of the rawness of the emotion yeah. and the sort of this, this incredible Maybe I'm a broken person. Well, that's what I'm wondering. <laughs> this, is, this is my concern is that you're just dead in your heart. Because there is, there's, a, there's an old saying about musicals and it's so old that I actually couldn't find who said it originally, that when the emotion becomes too strong for speech, you sing. When it becomes too strong for song, you dance. And that's the, that's what is, to me, the good musicals. Mm -hmm. And that's as opposed to the sort of bullshit jukebox musicals, which are just where the story is just like basically there to fill time between songs. Sure. It's really all about the song. I mean, basically, the structure is exactly the same as porn, <laughs> where it's like, if there's any story at all, it's really just to get to the next. The money shot. The money shot. Exactly. You know, the modern jukebox musicals that are using, like, pop hits are right. all like that. Um, Motown, the musical, and that sort of thing. Jersey Boys and that. Um, but even some, like, so-called classic musicals are like that. Like, Grease, to me, is not a good musical. It's really just all about the songs. Mm -hmm. But the really good book musicals, and I think the one we're watching this week is one of those, the songs really do come out of the character. That the music is the next level of character development, the next level of story mm -hmm. development. But again, you have to buy into it. And I I grew up on it. My mother was a huge Broadway musical freak. I grew up listening to Camelot and A Chorus Line and Fiddler on the Roof and all of these musicals that I still know every word to every song. But you resist. I do resist. I grew up around a lot of music. I love music. I could not imagine my life without music. And so maybe it's funny that you mentioned Motown because I love, when we went to see the Motown musical, mm -hmm. I loved it, but that's only because I like Smokey Robinson and I like Diana Ron. <laughs> so it was just a reason for me to see people performing that music live. And so I enjoyed it. And I think my problem with, and I, I keep wanting to say a lot of the musicals that we've watched and we have only watched one. <laughs> no, no. My problem. You, Nikki has said to me a dozen times, I'm not watching any more fucking musicals. 
And I'm like, we've only watched one musical, and that was six years ago. From what was I, the last musical we watched? From what I have gleaned, at least from pieces that I've seen here and there, it is rare that I actually enjoy the music, and that may be a big part of it. Is that I don't like the songs. I don't like any of the songs in Sound of Music. And so the musicals that I do enjoy, even, you know, to the smallest extent, are the ones where I really like the music. So The Wiz, I love the fucking music. You know, you have Quincy Jones doing it. So there's Michael Jackson and there's Nipsey Russell and Ted Ross doing really cool, amazing songs that I would be happy to listen to on their own without actually watching the film. Well, okay, but there's another factor in why you like The Wiz. Okay. Because it's black? Yes. (laughs) That's not true. And no, I, th- I think this is worth discussing. Okay. Because I do think that a lot of Broadway musicals, including The Sound of Music and including this musical, are very white, yes. first of all. Yes. And second of all, I think there's this other element, you know, people talk about the musical being one of the true American art forms. Mm-hmm. And I do think there's this kind of American dream, everyone in charge of their own destiny comedic structure in which everything's going to work out in the end this kind of aw shucks Mm -hmm. american pluckiness and earnestness about the musical form not every musical is like that but in general i think when people think of broadway musicals it has that americana Mm -hmm. element to it which i think maybe is part of your resistance to it as well that i mean yeah i hadn't thought of it that way i mean that's that may absolutely be a part of it is that uh, it's probably easier to give yourself over to those things when you can envision yourself in those worlds. And so that isn't necessarily the case with many of the musicals that I am aware of. Uh, so maybe that is why. I mean, but The Wiz just has great music, dude. And it's just awesome. <laughs> I love The Wiz. <laughs> but then, you know, there are other things you like. You like a little of West Side Story. I like America. You like the song I essentially America. wait for America and then I turn it off. <laughs> uh, I like The King and I, but that is m- totally about my love, weird love, for Yul Brenner. And he's a bald man. He's, so. he's just, it's totally culturally appropriate role and it's wrong and I love it, but I love him as that and I also love him as Pharaoh in uh, the, Ten, the Commandments. Ten Commandments. So that's a Yul Brynner thing. Right, movie. that has nothing to do with the actual music. It's just I'm happy to see Yul Brynner on my screen at any time. So yeah, I think that's that's part of it. So uh, I confess, I have a secret agenda which is to turn you into a musical theater fan by the end of this experiment. That will not happen. <laughs> I've got... I think I've got about three more musicals that I want us to do. I will try to space them out a little bit to give you a little break. But I am convinced that this is an art form that you eventually need to embrace. I really don't think so. So I think that there are people that walk around, and I've heard some people say this is like, I wish that my life was more like a musical. And that would be my nightmare. Like, I don't want to go to Citibank and have the person sing to me my poverty savings. Like that's just not <laughs> an enjoyable time. So what I what I would be happy for would be a life that is scored, right? So instead of musicals, I like films more like to take a recent example would be Baby Driver, where it was you know this diegetic music that 
it was like the score of his life. So that opening scene to Baby Driver where he's kind of walking and getting coffee and he's listening to his headphones and we're hearing all this great, you know, old soul music. I would love that, which is why I blast my ears <laughs> with my headphones when I'm walking around. Or like the sort of film trope where the person is waking up and they hit their alarm clock and then there's this whole morning montage to music. I'm all about that. I love that. But the idea of my life being an actual Those musical. Those are amazingly productive. You can get a lot of shit done You can get in a, a lot of shit done in a montage to like song. You know, law school <laughs> in a montage. That's what I want. Uh, but an actual musical itself would, would literally be a nightmare for me. That is not a joyous space to live in. But that's a thin line you were drawing. I mean, Baby Driver really is almost a jukebox musical. But nobody's actually singing. You're listening to... So that's the part you have a problem with. It may be the part that... And And So another thing that other people love that I don't love is this idea of someone serenading you, like, to your face. (laughs) I want to crawl out of my skin. I cannot imagine that being romantic or beautiful or it, I just please stop. Just it's please just, creepy. just it's just creepy. <laughs> just put on some Donny Hathaway and be like, this is the song I want you to hear, and then I will be there with you. I can get there. But if you sit down with a fucking guitar in my face, we're done. So maybe it is the act of seeing people sing. But I like artists singing. I just can't I, I don't want that line crossed in my life. I do not want you singing at me. Uh, I don't no, that makes me, it agitates me in a way that I can't even explain. So, no. No. <laughs> no, I can't. I feel like this is re- revealing more about my own neuroses than anything else. But, you know, if you people find it enjoyable, that's awesome. I don't. <laughs> I'd like to just keep my headphones on, please. Darling, how could you imagine such a thing? You know how I feel. I've written two or three times a day telling you. Sheets and sheets. Speak, and the world is full of singing, and I am winging higher than the birds. Touch, and my heart begins to crumble, the heavens tumble, darling, and I'm... Words, 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 I'm so sick of words. I get words all day through, first from him, now from you. Is that all you blighters can do? Talk of stars burning above. If you're in love, show me. Tell me no dreams filled with desire. Okay, so let's segue right into our conversation about My Fair Lady, which we are going to be watching shortly. To start out, why don't you tell me what you think the story of My Fair Lady is? So I think I know enough about it that I shouldn't have to watch it. Um, It's about a man who... Picks up a woman, is she a hooker, and <laughs> tries to re-sophisticate uh, her or something to make her a proper lady, um, and then they probably get married or something at the end, because that's usually how those things work out. That's that's my fair lady. <laughs> that's, that's the story. That's, okay. And there's some songs about reigning in Spain. <laughs> That's You're right. I don't even think I, I don't mean, even I think really you need don't. to see this one. I, really I think you got it down. So I think there's more to it than that. Yes, there's probably a very wealthy, classy lady who wants to be with the dude, and she's super pissed that he just picked up this hooker. So that's probably also going on. Okay, I'm not going to challenge your preconceptions about. I'm not going to tell you why you're wrong. She's not a hooker. 
she's she's not a hooker. Okay. But that's beside the point. <laughs> was she an ivory statue that came to life? Uh, no, okay. not literally. Okay. But I think the reasons why you were wrong are why I think you might like this movie a little better than you were expecting to. I find this a really interesting movie for challenging some of the expectations that you have. Okay. He, here's why I picked this movie. And I admit, I think I would have a hard time arguing that everybody on earth has seen My Fair Lady. I think probably that might have been true for my mother's generation. I don't think it's true these days. It's not as ubiquitous a musical as something like The Sound of Music, which mm -hmm. is in constant rotation on television. You know, sing-along versions in theaters. The Music Box Theater here in Chicago was just playing it last week in a sing-along version, which for some reason I couldn't get you to go to. Because I'd have to burn the theater down. Oh yeah, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah, I don't think My Fair Lady is quite as universally beloved as something like The Sound of Music. I do think, however, its story is this kind of archetypal yes. story. And, you know, going back to the Greek myth of Pygmalion, which then inspired George Bernard Shaw's play Pygmalion, upon which My Fair Lady is fairly faithfully based. And that, you know, in terms of the cultural impact of these movies, which is, again, one of the criteria, supposedly, by which I convince you to do these things. <laughs> you you can see the influence of this story in, like, a million other stories. Yes. So, you know, you've got the, the original myth is about a sculptor who falls in love with a statue that he makes that then comes to life. That's a story you can see in such more modern pseudo-classics as the film Mannequin. <laughs> Mannequin... Is amazing. Oh my god. Okay. And Hollywood is my style icon. Thank you very much. I'm so sorry I brought that up. <laughs> There's an element of it I think you're going to recognize like Trading Places, the Eddie Murphy movie, yes. I think has a little bit of My Fair Lady in it. If you, if you expand it to this kind of the ugly duckling who then becomes the sophisticated person, I think there's a million romantic comedies... I mean, even something like The Devil Wears Prada, mm -hmm. Pretty Woman, stuff like that, I think all certainly has echoes of My Fair Lady in it. Audrey Hepburn herself was in no fewer than three of these kind of movies. Funny Face and Sabrina is another one where she starts out as the chauffeur's daughter mm -hmm. and kind of moves into this upper class world. And then Roman Holiday, which was kind of the reverse of that, where she was the princess and then she was pretending to be the common person. Your beloved Family Guy has done an episode based on My Fair Lady. The Simpsons has done at least two episodes based on My Fair Lady. One with Mo and one with Groundskeeper Willie. Yeah. <laughs> so all of these references, I think, you know. So some... I've seen it. No. <laughs> That's not. As you just proved by your synopsis, that is just not how this works. And can we just get something clear? We need to get beyond this idea that you have. That the whole point of watching these movies is so you can pass some kind of pop quiz on them. Well, I feel like living, that's what it is. Is that, so you'll say a quote, and then if I don't know the answer, then I have to watch it. <laughs> so I really just need enough information that I can kind of fake a conversation with you, and then I never actually have to watch the film. There's also an argument that you watch art to actually experience the art and to enjoy the art. Sure. Absolutely. Not musicals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so this is... My Fair Lady ran, it was one of the longest running shows on Broadway. 
was a huge hit with Rex Harrison, who's in the film, and Julie Andrews, who is not, as we shall discuss. <laughs> the film came out in 1965. It is one of the top 10 most honored movies in Oscar history. It was nominated for 12 Oscars, and it won eight of them. Okay. So I don't see how it's possible that you're not going to like it. I'm absolutely not going to enjoy this. <laughs> the, can you also state the running time, please? It's, um... Shorter than Gone with the Wind. Which was like four hours. Correct. Mm-hmm. It's shorter than that. It's it's right about three hours. Okay. Once you factor in the, you know, overture and, and the intermission yeah. Okay. and yeah. all of that, yes. So, problem number one. Problem number two? The music. The singing. Okay. <laughs> so, as I started to say, I originally, admittedly, picked this movie in part because it's because you hate musicals and I wanted to do another musical. And I hadn't seen it probably in 20 some odd years. But I went back and watched it recently and was surprised to discover that I actually really like it. I actually think it's a really interesting film. I think the character dynamics are interesting and worthy of discussion. So I am looking forward to this. And I want you to go into it with an open mind. We just had a whole discussion about how I am close-minded about musicals. Right, so. and what we're trying to do here is like stick a crowbar into your mind no. and open it up just a little bit. No, it's probably not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen. The glorious motion picture now comes back to the audiences that have paid their tribute in almost unceasing applause. Warner Brothers takes pride in announcing special selected engagements of My Fair Lady. What about your boast that you could pass her off as a duchess at the embassy ball, eh? I'll say you're the greatest teacher alive if you can make that good. I'll bet you all the expenses of the experiment that you can't do it. Oh, you're real good. Thank you, Captain. You know, it's almost irresistible. She's so deliciously low. So horribly dirty. Man and arm of iron, but with a little bit of luck, with a little bit of luck, someone else will do the blinking work. Okay, we're back, and at this point, Nikki and I have watched My Fair Lady. So, if you have not seen My Fair Lady, and if you, unlike Nikia, have any desire to see it, you should probably <laughs> pause the podcast now and go watch it. Because we are now going to venture into spoiler territory. So, I guess my first question, Nikia. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I think we need to address the elephant in the room. Did you recognize this story as our story? I'm sorry, what? The parallels, I think, are inescapable. Whereas, in, in terms of cinematic <laughs> culture, I am the sophisticated professor. Mm-hmm. And you are the, you know, squashed cabbage leaf. Wow. The draggle-tailed gutter snipe. Wow. To whom I am imposing all of this culture and knowledge and teaching you to appreciate the finer things in life. Do you realize how even more problematic and colonialist this becomes when you're talking about you, a white man, and me, a black woman? No, I don't. I don't see that at all. No. I think you're bringing in a lot of extraneous I'm really stuff. not. I'm really not. <laughs> not. Not at all, actually. I thought the parallels were obvious. I thought it, you know. Um, 
Well, I spoke good King's English before I met you. So the only thing you've brought to the table is a lot of just terrible films. So I really don't see what the parallels would be there. In great, just like the end of the movie. Wow. She just throws it all back in his face. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so let's talk about this movie. Was it what you expected? It wasn't. I actually think I enjoyed the story much more than I thought I would. And hated the music just about as much as I thought I would. Uh, if not more, because there were more songs that were really spaced very closely together uh, that I was not aware of. So that was painful for me. But the story itself, I actually enjoyed it. It, was, it at least started differently than what I had assumed. I assumed that he initiated that sort of relationship with her, and that is not the case. So. That's an important point. It is a very important point. She comes to him yes. Yes. wanting to make her life better. He right. doesn't just pick her up out of the gutter. And, right. So it's really her ambition. Yes, that is driving that the plot. That drives the story. Right, right. Okay, so let's let's back up. Let's start with I wanted to do, and this can be a new segment that we will call Review the Reviews. Okay. I want to read to you a few lines from reviews of My Fair Lady and get your impression of them. Bosley Crowther, the longtime New York Times critic, wrote about this film when it first came out. Though it runs for three hours or close to it, this My Fair Lady seems to fly past like a breeze. No, it does not. Like Eliza's disposition to dancing, it could go on for all I'd care all night. I disagree. <laughs> I roundly disagree. With that review. It was a very long three hours for me. See, that's how I feel about it. If you know, if it's if it's that good, you just want it to just keep on no, going. No, I think if you cut the songs, you could probably get it down to probably about an hour and a half. And that would be a good tight film that I would be happy to watch. On that point, mm-hmm. let us turn to Roger Ebert. Oh, Roger, I love you. <laughs> My Fair Lady is the best and most unlikely of musicals, Roger writes during which I cannot decide if I am happier when the characters are talking or when they are singing. The songs are literate and beloved, some romantic, some comic, some nonsense, some surprisingly philosophical, every single one wonderful. I disagree. How can you disagree with Roger? I I mean, it is Roger Ebert. icon, Roger Ebert. Ridiculously talented and amazing reviewer. uh, And I hate to be... On the opposite side of his his viewpoint, but I, I, I could not with the music. I just could not. It, there were too many songs, and I didn't like any of them. Not a one. You did, as we were watching it, you did seem to have the reaction that one song would barely Once, finish. Exactly. And then another one would begin again, and so I start to hear this like swell of music, and I'm immediately tensing up, like, oh no, are we going into another song? And it's just, I can't, I, no. I'm not a fan of musicals. I, and that's just, and I admit that that's my, I will say it's my own personal failing. I do not like musicals. As soon as the strings start, no, I'm done. Can we fast forward until they're ready to talk again? So here's another form of review. As we mentioned earlier, My Fair Lady was nominated for 12 Oscars and won eight of them. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director for George Cooker. It won Best Actor for Rex Harrison. And then it won cinematography, sound, score, art direction, and costume design. Additionally, it was nominated for screenplay editing and uh, supporting actor for Stanley Holloway, who plays Eliza's father. Mm. 
and supporting actress for Gladys Cooper, who plays his mother, who plays Henry Higgins' mother. Audrey Hepburn was not nominated. Really? And this is another one of those great ironies of Oscar history, is that Julie Andrews had originated the role on Broadway. The producers decided she was not enough of a film star to star in the movie. They wanted a more known quantity, which Audrey Hepburn was at that point. So they cast Audrey Hepburn, who, as we'll discuss, could not really sing. No. Instead of casting Julie Andrews. Julie Andrews, being shut out of this movie, was then free to make a movie called Mary Poppins. Which Uh. she won the Best Actress Oscar for this year, in which Audrey Hepburn was not even nominated. Life is funny that way. (laughs) Well, since you mentioned Audrey Hepburn, we can talk about the fact that I did not... I found the use of... Is it Marnie Nixon? It's Marnie Nixon. I found the use of Marnie Nixon as her singing voice a bit jarring, uh, given that her sort of Cockney accent was such a part of her characterization Mm -hmm. to then have her sing in this very sort of genteel, pristine voice was a little bit... Yeah, this is this is Marnie Nixon, the great the great dubber of voices. She was, she dubbed uh, Deborah Carr in The, the King, King and I. Mm-hmm. She dubbed Natalie Wood in West Side Story. And she dubbed Audrey Hepburn in this movie. And I agree. It just, it just sounds wrong. Yeah, yeah. Especially in the beginning when, before Audrey Hepburn is refined, she... You know, Audrey's doing one thing with her accent, and then suddenly Marnie Nixon is singing in this more refined voice. Uh, tonally, it just sounds wrong. Audrey right. Hepburn is a is an alto, and suddenly this soprano voice kicks in. <laughs> it's just weird. It is a little weird. And there are clips, actually. Um, I saw them on YouTube. I think they come, probably come from the DVDs. Of Audrey singing at least one of the songs. Mm. I think it's uh, the first song, Wouldn't It Be Leverly? And she sounds fine. I mean, she's not a great singer. Right. But she's much more in... She's singing in character. Right. Which Marnie Nixon is not necessarily always doing. Um, And she's certainly not any worse than Rex Harrison is. (laughs) (laughs) So I I would love to see the version of this movie that's just Audrey Hepburn singing. Mm. Um, I don't know if that exists somewhere in the files, but... Yeah. I mean, but other than that, I thought she was great. Um, I think she... It felt to me like it was a, there was a little bit of overacting towards the beginning. Sort of the reactions of when she would get really excited or really upset and it would just be this kind of yelling of vowels. And <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and I don't know if that was just... It comes across as over the top. And again, I don't know if it's a choice for the character... Um, I mean, obviously she made a choice to do it, but I don't know if I'm just annoyed by the character or if I'm annoyed by the choices she made in portraying the character, that kind of manic, ah, like it was just (laughs) these Muppet noises that she would make when she got angry. It's almost a little animalistic. It's a little little bit animalistic. Which means it's possibly a little condescending to the lower class. Right. I mean, the consensus, I think, on Audrey Hepburn's performance is that She's better when she becomes the late, the yes, refined lady. Because Audrey is a lady. She struggles right. in the beginning right. with the more Cockney accent. Um, I've got another quote here. This is Andrew Sarris in The Village Voice, who was not a fan of the movie. <laughs> he says, The acting, except for Harrison's, is uniformly bad. <laughs> 
Audrey Hepburn suggests nothing so much as a Vogue model masquerading as a flower girl to create a sense of contrast in the magazine spread that will culminate with her stylish arrival at Ascot. That's a little harsh. Yeah. I think she's better than that. I think she is better than that. But I do think she may be overcompensating for the Audrey Hepburn-ness in the beginning to try to kind of dirty, quote unquote, dirty herself up a little bit. And it, it, it... it's a little bit much for me as an acting choice, but okay. And what about Rex Harrison? Um, he's a dick. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, the character is a dick. The character we don't, is we a don't dick. Know Rex right. personally. I'm sure Rex is a was a very fine I, gentleman. I, I don't know that either. But <laughs> I don't have any information on that. Right. Yeah. So I mean, his character was very, you know, condescending and impatient and boorish, which is funny considering that he was very much about proper speaking and proper social mores and things of that nature um he's quite rude so well there's an i i find him an interesting character because there's the class issues in the movie right i think are not as straightforward as they appear to be on the surface Mm -hmm. because his job and i think uh george bernard shaw's play makes this a little more explicit than the movie does but his job, how he makes his living, is basically by helping new money millionaires mm-hmm. get along in the old money world. Mm-hmm. So these like merchants who have suddenly made a fortune coming out of poverty, he teaches them to talk in a way that they can be accepted by kind of this old money right. society. So, you know, on the one hand, it's easy to see Henry Higgins as this kind of like symbol of the upper class mm-hmm. and that world but he's really kind of about breaking that world down Mm -hmm. and that's and that's the project he undertakes here is to is to show that someone a gutter snipe a a gutter snipe (laughs) if she can just be taught to talk properly is no different or right no better or worse than right than the upper class which i think is why i liked the story more than i thought i would this sort of idea of rebuking the british class system and, and this notion that an accent could place you and define you. And I guess his job was essentially to say this idea of meritocracy is really, it's just about kind of luck of birth and luck of zip code. And anybody can be noble if they have the sort of social capital to operate within that world. Right. Which I thought was interesting. But he's also, like you said, a dick. He is also a dick. Right. And his form, he says it towards the end of the movie... He's a dick to everyone. Right. Right. That's his form of egalitarianism right. is, you know, she says Colonel Pickering treats a flower girl as a duchess. And he says, I treat a duchess as a flower girl. Right. Is it, well, this is <laughs> almost an unnecessary question. Do you find him misogynistic? Um, yes. I mean, there's that whole song about why can't a woman be like a man. Right. And his ideas about what a woman is, this sort of chattery distraction in your life uh, versus a man who just gets to be a whole person and is a man and isn't, you know. So that there's definitely some, at least some sexist ideas going on there. Right. But on the other hand, it's a little more complicated than that, isn't it's it? It's a little Seems bit more complicated because... He could, it, it could also just come down to he's a misanthrope. Like, I don't know that he likes anybody, right. really. So this is, I read an interview with Julie Andrews 
This was an interview by Alyssa Blake in the Sydney Morning Sydney Morning Herald, and she interviewed Julie Andrews specifically about My Fair Lady mm-hmm. and specifically about the question of whether it's sexist. And she, Julie Andrews said, "Oh gosh, it is very, very sexist." <laughs> Young women in particular will and should find it hard. You have to remember that this story is set just a couple of years before the rise of the suffragette movement. Mm -hmm. Women's rights aren't there yet, but emancipation is where she's heading. I firmly believe that. But she also said, which I thought was a really interesting observation about Henry Higgins. She said, if you look at him now, you would probably consider him to be on the spectrum. In those days, we wouldn't have... We wouldn't have had that way of describing him, but there he is, a man very passionate about one thing and one thing only, and Hmm. unable to unlock himself as far as human emotions and relationships are concerned. I had not considered that. Not sure about that? I don't know. I mean, yes, he is hyper-focused on this one thing. I don't know. I mean, that's interesting. I I don't know that I would describe him as being on the spectrum. So let's... Let's get to, and this is kind of my chief argument for this movie and what I want to get your opinion on. Is My Fair Lady a love story? Right. So that's a good question. Um, I think I would have preferred that the last scene be when the two of them are arguing at his mom's house and she says, okay, bye. And she leaves. Okay. (laughs) Now we need to talk about this. In George Bernard Shaw's play, Mm -hmm. that is the last scene. Okay. See, Hollywood always needs a fucking happy ending, man. Well, we'll talk about the ending of the movie, but let's talk about this first. Okay, so yes, that is the very last scene in Pygmalion. Okay. And she walks out and he yells something at her that's... It's it's kind of the equivalent of the last line in the movie. He says something like, you know, pick up my dry cleaning or something like that. Mm -hmm. And she just says, pick him up yourself, and she walks out. Mm Mm-hmm. And he's like, she'll be back. But (laughs) I I think we're supposed to think she hasn't come back. And then George Bernard Shaw was frustrated because everyone who saw the play and wrote about the play assumed that they ended up together. Really? That they got together. So he, Shaw, went to the extraordinary measure of writing a postscript in prose to the play to be included in the play that basically tells everything that happens next. Huh. And it does not include... (laughs) A happy ending. A happy end. Well, it does not include Higgins and Eliza getting together. And he starts this off saying, The rest of the story need not be shown in action, and indeed would hardly need telling if our imaginations were not so enfeebled by their lazy dependence (laughs) on the ready-makes and reach-me-downs of the rag shop in which romance keeps its stock of happy endings. I like him. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) He says, People in all directions have assumed for no reason other than that she is the heroine of a romance, that she must have married the hero of it. This is unbearable, not only because her little drama, if acted on such a thoughtless assumption, must be spoiled, but because the true sequel is patent to anyone with a sense of human nature in general and a feminine instinct in particular. Now, I, I agree with all of that. I'm fine with all of that. His sequel, however, that he writes out in prose form, is that she marries Freddy. Freddy the Stalker. <laughs> And I think he does he doesn't really describe it as a great romance. It's more of a practical 
you know, she's definitely not going to marry Higgins. Is my understanding that Freddie's broke? He doesn't have money? Freddie is broke, yes. So Freddie is upper class, isn't bringing shit to the table but love. That's right. Okay. Yeah. And he's kind of an idiot. I mean... He did not seem bright. No. <laughs> But yes, that she marries Freddie and Colonel Pickering stakes them to open a flower shop. Mm. But she also never quite leaves Higgins. Mm. That Shaw says Eliza's instinct tells her not to marry Higgins. It does not tell her to give him up. And like that they still, that he's still the most important man in her life. And she's still the most important woman in his life. And she's involved in his household and all of that. Mm -hmm. And they fight and she doesn't take any shit from him. But that they still have that very important relationship. And Freddie is almost like Eliza's puppy dog. That. (laughs) (laughs) So, and again, this is not how the movie ends. Right. The final scene of the movie is she comes back after she's blown up at him. And she walks in and... He simply smugly says, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? And that's the, where the movie ends. Right. So what do you, how do you take that ending? I think that I have been trained by various romantic comedy to feel that they get together. Because it tends to be that, you know, the sweet forgiving woman comes back to the boorish man and they make it work and it's it's wonderful. Right. And even even if we just talk about musicals, that is such a formula. I mean the sound of music yes. is basically Yes. Uh what's his name? Von Trapp, Von Trapp. is the cranky, mm-hmm. you know, brutish guy. And she brings light she into his life. Over. Yes. <laughs> um and I thought of I mean the King and I is sort of like the King that and I is too, definitely like that. Yes. You know, that's such, a, that's such a musical trope. This one, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that is... You think she walks back out? I don't think she walks back out. I think, for me, there's a third alternative of some kind. I mean, the power dynamics have shifted so incredibly by the end of that movie. Mm-hmm. You know, he he is a broken man after that scene in which she stands up to him. At his mother's house. Mm-hmm. And that song... And we've, we're going to have to talk about the songs. I know you don't want to talk about the songs. I want to talk about the songs. Okay. Because there's this, there's this really cool way that the songs work in parallel to one another. Like his song at the end, I've Grown Accustomed to Her Face. It starts out as the revenge song, which is paralleled to her song early in the movie the just you wait and right, against, right where it's like this fantasy revenge you know he that's how he starts that song where he's singing about you know i can picture her living with freddie and she's gonna be miserable and then he sort of breaks down into this emotional place like i just miss her miss her and can't live without her and i'm going to husband to her face and she, she almost makes the day begin so yeah so the power dynamics have shifted so much that i don't i don't think he's ever going to have the upper hand on her again Mm-hmm. When she comes back in the end, and I think that little spug where the devil in my slippers is like, he that's putting on an act and she's letting him, but it's not. She doesn't rush to him. She doesn't embrace him. She doesn't kneel by his chair. There's not a kiss in the entire movie. No. And that scene in his mother's house, they talk about that. They talk about whether they would get married. They talk about, and she says, "That's not what I want from you." 
that's not the kind of feeling I want from you. I don't want you to make love to me. I just want... Respect. Respect and mm-hmm. to be treated more friendly-like. So, yeah, I I can almost see the ending as being more like what Shaw was describing, where they still have this relationship. They may still be the most important people to each other, but it's on a much more equal basis. Mm-hmm. There's a line, and again, it's a line that's in the play. The, the film is very faithful to Shaw's play. Like, most of the dialogue comes straight from the play. But then there are some slight changes. And there's a line in that scene at his mother's house when it's when he says to her, you know, you're magnificent. You're, you know, I like you like this. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to get her to come back. And he says something like, you know, you, me, and Pickering will be three old bachelors. Rather than two old bachelors and a little girl. Right. So it's like... She's become a man in his eyes. She's become a man in in his eyes. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. But I think it's... This is one of the reasons why, to me, this is a much more interesting musical than a lot of them. Yeah. Because I think think people want to read it as a love story, but I don't think it really is. And in fact, and this is one of the reasons I thought you might actually like it more, is because it it like really undermines some of that stuff. Like I love the song that she has with Freddie, Mm -hmm. that scene where he starts to sing a love song. And she's like, I don't want to hear it. (laughs) She's like, shut the fuck up. Just show me. (laughs) Like, you know, if you want me, well, you want me, but stop singing in my face. Yeah. Like that, that to me was you all over. It's very true. But she was singing while she was doing it. Well, yes. That's the problem. (laughs) So would you just, you just say, can you not sing to me, please? I don't want to hear it. Sweet, sweet, stupid Freddie. He really is a star. Like, for like two months, he's standing outside her Just apartment dude. every day. Else he doesn't even be. have a boombox with, you know, <laughs> Peter Gabriel. <laughs> yeah, Freddie is just insipid. Yeah. And that's fine. If you want a puppy dog, then get yourself a puppy dog. That works, but... But that's what I love. It's like, Freddie is in another musical. Yeah. Freddie is... Freddie's in the love hero. story. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so what else? We have not talked about her father. Uh-huh. What do you make of Alfie? <laughs> Alfie is a no-shit-ass man <laughs> and sings songs about being proud of being a no-shit-ass man. Uh, yeah, Alfie ain't worth shit. <laughs> Alfie ain't gonna be shit. Alfie don't want shit. <laughs> he's just a deadbeat dad. He's, he's just, just a deadbeat dad who comes around. But he's proud of it. He's very proud. He's very, very proud. He's proud that he doesn't have to work. He's proud that he he begs people for money. He's proud to be drunk in the middle of the day. Uh, he's like, I'm not deserving. I'm right. the undeserving I'm the undeserving. Poor. Which, and that makes my life harder because the deserving poor gets everything. And... You know, it's good to have that sort of clarity. <laughs> That's good for you. But yeah, he's... Terrible father. I, I had a hard time with Alfie this this viewing because on the one hand I love him because he's just kind of this like Dickensian mm-hmm. sensualist character who's just so much fun. But then if you start thinking about what it's actually saying about class and mm. what it's like, if, if that movie was set in America and that character was a lower class person, God forbid, a person of, of color, color yeah. presented as basically this like. Mm-hmm. 
I got babies all over town and I don't take yeah, care of. I, I'm not married. <laughs> I collect my welfare check. Exactly. Yes, it would be a it huge problem. It would be a problem. hugely problematic a huge character. Problem. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then he's got, going back to the song thing, he's got his two songs that sort of work against each other too. The first one is all about, the first one is uh, with a little bit of luck. Mm-hmm. And it's all about him loving his right. life and ripping everybody off. Skating by. Skating by and everything. And then the second one is Get Me to the Church on Time, mm-hmm. which starts out as this drunken anthem, but sort of ends up as this like funereal march. Yes. Like, he just, literally lays out with a flower and they carry him to the it's church. Like the end of his life. To his it's death. Over yes. Because he has been catapulted into middle class morality. Yeah. The curse of having money. Yeah. People expect things of you, and that's a problem. <laughs> that is a serious problem. <laughs> I mean, it does, it, like, this film, and I, and that's why I said I actually enjoyed the film more than I thought I would, minus the music. It is an interesting sort of conversation about class and how we define class and what our expectations are of people within certain classes. And one of the sort of things that resonated with me is it reminded me a lot of this idea of code switching, which is something that's very familiar in the black community. I mean, everybody does it, like we all do it, but this idea of like, there are different ways that you speak and behave depending on uh, your audience Mm -hmm. or the group that you're with. And so it becomes imperative, particularly for people of color to sort of learn the ways in which sort of upper class majority populations speak and behave in order to gain entree into those worlds and to be successful within the the current structure. So there's the voice that I have with my family and the way that I speak with my family. And then there's the voice that I have on job interviews or when I'm speaking with customer Mm. service. So it's just, and this idea of like, it's uh, this idea of sort of respectability politics. Like there's a certain way if you behave a certain way, if you speak a certain way, then you can kind of earn your spot into um, respectable society. Right. But then you have to kind of question, what does it mean to sort of operate and participate within a system that is inherently hierarchical, and built why, on inequality? Right. Um, why is one form of speech and why is one over Right, another? exactly. Um, because when you say, oh, I'm code switching to... X, you are valuing one thing over another, saying that you can't be accepted in one way versus another. Um, so I thought that was really interesting. And then, in, you know, we see in the film, she can't go back. Right. That she is so cut off from that world that people literally don't recognize her when she goes back to it. Mm-hmm. And she just doesn't belong there anymore. Mm-hmm. I think one of the, the lines that she says that I, I really liked was she said something like, you know, I sold flowers, I didn't sell myself. Now you've made me a lady, and I don't have anything else to sell. Right, but that's all I'm. Good yeah, for. that's all I'm good for. And so it's just like how buying into these sort of systems means there is some agency that you lose. Like you are compromising, and you are going to be selling something. And so, what does that mean? What are you giving up in order to be a part of the sort of quote unquote upper class? It's also a good illustration of this idea of gatekeeping. So. People like, well, not necessarily Higgins, but Higgins has the tools to teach other people, but um, people at the Ascot race and people at the uh, the gala are gatekeepers. And so their sort of rules of behavior and rules of interaction are about defining others 
but it's almost more important that it also is how they define themselves. And so if someone comes in without those tools, it threatens what they are. If being upper class is this and this is what I am, then if somebody comes in and doesn't abide by these rules, then am I still upper class? Am I still better? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think there's a lot of interesting sort of class conversations happening in this movie. Yeah, like that scene, the scene in Ascot is interesting because she has, she has the language, she has the pronunciation, but she doesn't have the manners and the, the sense of propriety. And it's kind of a problem with the film and the play did the same thing. They kind of skip over the part where she learns all of that. Right. Which to me is kind of the harder part to learn. Mm -hmm. The part where they smooth out because that's I mean that's about character that's about personality right it's not just about how you pronounce words that she learns not to yell move your lean (laughs) ass at the horse at the horse race well it's funny because like I uh, when I was thinking about code switching I don't remember and I maybe this just happens in school but I don't remember anyone ever explicitly sitting down and saying having a conversation was like when you are at work or when you are at school or when you are, you know, out amongst people that are not your family or not your friends and who do not know you, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do not say this, you do not say this, you do not say this. I mean, there was a little bit of that of just, you know, don't act an ass. Right. And essentially, don't embarrass me was like (laughs) the overarching theme of behavior was just don't embarrass me. Um, And so what that meant was, I mean, essentially it was don't go out here and let these white people think that I don't know how to raise a child. Right. Right. And so that came with this sort of set of rules that weren't explicitly stated, but you knew it meant, okay, don't be loud. Don't act or speak out of turn. You know, speak properly, address people properly, things like that. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, it's interesting how you pick those things up. And some of it is just sort of osmosis. Like you see how people behave and then you go, okay, well, that's what I'm supposed to do in these sort of instances. And some of it well, you're not. You're not even aware when you do it. I'm now. not. I'm not. Like you, you say that I speak differently when I'm on the phone with my family or my friends, and I'm like, I don't. Right. I, I can tell whether you're talking to someone white or someone right. black on the phone, and you swear up and down that you talk the same. I talk the same, and I know I don't. I know I don't. But that's how unconscious as it is. Is it just happens automatically? I don't have to think about it based on the audience or who I'm with or who I'm around. The language shifts. The way I behave shifts. And it's just, it, re- it really is of a sort of, if you want to survive in certain spheres, these are the tools that you have to have. And you have to be able to do it really quickly so you don't have time to think about, you know, what is going to be appropriate in this situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've been getting very deep. Let's talk about some superficial things. Okay. Um, the costumes. I love the costumes. This was, I think, one of the most expensive productions of to date. And just the production design yeah. and the costumes. Well, the extras alone. Really, I mean, they're yeah. the opening scene, um, the ascot race, and the gala. I mean, they were beautiful, beautiful gowns and beautiful uh, costuming. Um, her gown for the gala was stunning. It was a little tiara. Very beautiful. So I, I very much appreciated. You, who did you think it was? I thought it was Givenchy, but apparently it was just uh, the costume designer. Yes, so. whose name I should have at my fingertips and don't. But yeah, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> I think her ascot dress is the one that's become kind of iconic. Mm. Uh, but I agree, the ball gown was, that was better. Pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay, and now let's let's talk about the songs. You couldn't have hated every single song. I hated every single song. How is that even possible? I didn't like any of them. <laughs> <laughs> it was very easy. I didn't like any of them. And I have to tell our listeners that earlier today... Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Nakia just started spontaneously singing. Uh, was it just you? I think it was just you, Wade, Henry Higgins. Okay. I think that was the one you had Let's have the record straight. I had come into your office and Henry Higgins was up on your screen. You had a little picture of him. I suppose you were doing screenshots or something. And so it popped into my head and that's how it happened. It was not because I just spontaneously... was no. in there. It is in there Well, of course now. it's all in there. And that's part of why I hate this is because <laughs> it's taking up valuable brain space that I could be using for other things. But yes. Do you have a favorite song? Or a favorite musical number. Really try. Come on. <laughs> I mean, I probably... So the the duet she does with Freddie is pretty good just because I do think it's funny. Um, and I like Just You Wait, Henry Higgins, but I like the parts that she actually sings herself because you get that ridiculous sort of cockneys like... And Roy Eglins kind of thing. So, <laughs> so I like it for just that sort of thing. But yeah, I didn't like any of the songs. Well, I mean, what about uh, Rex Harrison's lovely, lovely singing voice? His sing talk voice? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. Not a fan. Inter- interesting to me, side note on that film, apparently it was one of the first films to use wireless microphones. Oh. Because usually, and I think what everyone else in the movie did, is you sing the song first, and then the actor performs. But Rex Harrison refused to do that because he said he never sang the song the same way twice. He performed it on Broadway for 10 years at that point, and he said he never did the song the same way twice. So he insisted on live performing it. Random trivia. That's what I'm here (laughs) for. It wasn't a bad voice. I don't... And part of it is, I don't know... And maybe on Broadway it's a bit different, but I don't know that I go into musicals expecting amazing singing voices. I expect the sort of staccato sing-talky thing. Right. Um, well, especially men traditionally especially men, have, not traditionally, been, yeah. have not needed to sing to be Broadway stars. So I don't necessarily look for that. And again, in the case of Audrey Hepburn, I, I think I probably would have preferred to hear her just sing it herself. So did you have a least what was the most painful oh. song or part of the film? I mean, any part where a song ended and then literally two minutes later... You, you visibly flinched. Another song started. Well, we <laughs> I was just like, didn't we just every finish time the, Every time the notes would just start to build, <laughs> you'd be like, no, 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 no. We just finished a song. <laughs> Can we just not? Please. And then sometimes you'd think the song was over. Right. And then there was another verse. And <laughs> They'd talk a little bit in the middle and then they'd go back I to just, the song. I just... It's it's too much. I think uh, one of her father's song was like that. That might have been um, get me to the church get me to the church on time. It stopped and then it started again. Yeah, and that's just, that's a long that's a long. And scene. I think he he also uh, came from the Broadway production. I think he's the only other person that mm-hmm. did. And I think that character was popular. I think his songs were among the most popular songs. I think that was the big show stopping number mm-hmm. that they just. We're not going to skimp on. Well, he for, does this little for the film two step in it, and <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that song goes on a long time. It really does, and it's very elaborate. Yes. <laughs> okay, so let's just go into final verdict here, and this is the part where you admit that you actually enjoyed My Fair Lady. 
I enjoyed the story. There was, it was surprising to me. Um, I went in with some expectations and they were proven wrong. By George, I think she's got it. (laughs) I did not like the music. Fucking terrible music. Not good. It's not terrible music. Okay, I walked that back. It is not terrible music. I just didn't enjoy it. So you're never, you're never going to enjoy the music. Is that basically what we're getting? That's probably, that's what I mean. Can you think of it like, okay, so the songs to some extent function like the soliloquies in Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. That that's the purpose they serve in a lot of cases. I understand their purpose. To bring the... Character out, right? No, I totally get that. I do not enjoy them as music. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Just say that to me. Or have them at a desk writing themselves a letter, and we hear <laughs> the narration so con- in the head. That is so contrived. Do it. Come on. <laughs> Voice over narration. That's contrived, is but horrible. bursting out into song is not contrived. <sighs> I don't understand. I can't do it. I cannot do it. So you would have rather just watched the play of Pygmalion? I would have rather watched the play of Pygmalion. Yes. Okay. I think that's what it comes down to. The song just brings nothing to the it table. It does nothing for me. It really just makes me angry and annoyed, and I'm just waiting for it to be over. I can't, and I, I admit that that's it's you know a blind spot that I have, and you know probably says something about my soul, but I can't do it. Okay. I love music. I don't love not great music. I'm, I'm not giving up on this. We're, we've, okay. we've got more music. In fact, this podcast may just become all musicals all the time. We will definitely be getting a divorce. <laughs> and I will write down because he made me watch musicals. <laughs> okay. So let's... Uh, we started the podcast with a discussion about rewatchability and canon mm-hmm. and all of that. And mm-hmm. we agreed that we need to start talking about these things at the end of each of these conversations. So... Where does My Fair Lady fall in your... I would probably not rewatch it, but I would recommend it to a friend if they liked musicals. Because the story actually is interesting. If you if you came across it flipping channels while you had mono, I think you might settle in and watch some of I don't Fair know about Lady. that. I mean, if I came in when she was coming down the stairs in her gown, I'd watch her come down the stairs in her gown for a minute, and then I'd be like, okay, I'm done. Because you're just a fashion fetishist. I really am a fashion fetishist. Like, I just like costumes. Um, but I don't know that I would sit and watch. And again, it's three hours. I just don't know that I would sit and watch it again. I really don't. But I wouldn't tell anyone not to see it. Which, okay. is, usually, which is better for me. That, because usually is, I no, say... this is huge progress. Because <laughs> usually you're like, you know, burn it with fire. <laughs> it should not exist. <laughs> I, I understand why people love this. I think it is really well done. I see the value in it. I would recommend it if you enjoy musicals. I probably won't be watching it again. Okay. There's a new production opening on Broadway next year. I will not be seeing that. If you'd like me to get tickets to that. No. No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. Because you can't be sulky in a theater. I'd be like, (laughs) ugh, in the theater. That's, you know, that's a dick move. So. Seriously, another song? I can't pause and go get snacks and say, I need a break. So, yeah, no, I probably shouldn't go see that in theater. But I wish them luck. Okay. Well, I guess I have to be satisfied with that. I I think that's, you know. You know, I'll take that. It's high praise coming from me. I do not want to burn it. (laughs) That's the equivalent of a thumbs up. I mean, really. That's a, you know. Roger Ebert to write all of his beautiful prose. 
Mine is, I don't want to burn it. Burn or don't burn. <laughs> That's two no burns from Nikia. Classy lady here. That's our show. We want to thank you for listening, and we hope you'll tune in next week when we watch a movie that I think is a little bit more in Nikia's wheelhouse. 1989's Dead Poet Society. I'm sorry, what makes that in my wheelhouse? Well, it's about, you know, pasty, super-privileged white boys in a New England prep school. That seems like it's right up your alley. Of hate? Yes. My alley of hate. (laughs) In the meantime, you can leave us a review on iTunes, check us out in prose form on unaffiliatedcritic.com, send us an email at michael at unaffiliatedcritic.com, or tweet us at freerangecritic on Twitter. As always, we welcome suggestions for movies that Nakia desperately needs to see in order to make her life complete. Until next time, remember, true love means conning your partner into watching movies they really, really don't want to watch. I thought true love meant never having to say you're sorry. No, not not for us. And you haven't seen that movie either. The wine and spine stays mainly in the plane. Pip, pip, cheerio. I doff my cat to you, sir. Chim, chiminy, chim, chim, cheroo. Tuppence a bag. It's a jolly holiday with Mary. No it's wonder actually, that it's Mary that we love. It's actually worse than Nick Van Dyke Jackson, and I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> oh, it's a jolly holiday with Mary. You know I'm putting that in, right? No, you're not. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>